I've been thinking about parties this week. Sometimes they can be a lot of fun, but have you ever experienced that sometimes parties can also be social landmines? Ever gone to a party and ended up in the middle of a fight? You know, there's a lot of questions surrounding parties. Questions that cause some of us anxiety. Who do I invite? If I'm invited, do I go? If I go, what should I expect? Is there anything I should not do while I'm at the party? What will I be doing? If I don't go, will will there be any fallout? If I do go, will there be any fallout from that? Parties are filled with ramifications, rules, and there's social faux pas that you don't want to mess up. Parties can be fun, but they can also be landmine. Do you ever see one of these things play out on Facebook? And it's painful to watch when a party becomes a a landmine. Today, what we're going to watch is Jesus take a very tense feast slash party Because often they were, especially when the Pharisees were there, and especially when they invited them. Feast, yeah. But it was a trap often, right? He's going to take a tense feast, a tense party, and use it to teach us some very important lessons about the kingdom of God. To teach them and to teach us. Luke chapter 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, He was being carefully watched. There's the first hint. This is not just a social gathering. They're inviting him so they can keep an eye on him. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Some translations say dropsy. Today we think of edema. It's often a result of congestive heart failure. It would cause liquids to, to pile up in a part of the body. I've got one picture just so you can see the kind of suffering this person might have been experiencing. Bill, can you put that up there? You see that leg? That's the condition this person had, right? So the Pharisees put him there in front of Jesus, and Jesus asked the Pharisees. He, he takes the proactive lead. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, because how many times have we seen this on the Sabbath, right? We've been down this road at least seven times in the gospel. Jesus goes out of his way to do this on the Sabbath to say, I care more about God's kingdom than your social faux pas, okay? We got that, but watch what happens. Jesus takes the lead, asks the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remain silent. Now it's possible that this Pharisee invited this man with this disease just for this purpose. Okay, based on some of the things Jesus says later, normally this guy wouldn't have invited this man. He would only invite other guests that were higher up and could pay him back. So that combined with the he, they were watching him. He may just be there as a plant. So he asked them this question. They remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And again, they had nothing to say. They found themselves there a lot. When they tried to trap Jesus, he turned the tables. And basically, again, this is a powerful way of saying, like we just said, Jesus cares a lot more about God's kingdoms than our social traditions and faux pas, okay? He's here to advance his Father's will. And here come three lessons he's going to teach them and us about the kingdom of God. Check this out. Number one, don't miss out on God's kingdom 
because you're focused on exalting yourself. Verse 7, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them a parable. Now back in that day, tables were very low to the ground, and they usually set them up in a U-shape. And the way a party would happen, there would be pillows around the table, and you would recline on your left elbow, and you would eat with your right hand. If you were a lefty, you really messed the party up, okay? <laughs> really made things difficult. But you'd lean on your left elbow, and you'd eat. You got this middle table, and then you got the two sides of the U. The, the host would sit right at the middle of this, this part of the U. And guests would want to get as close to the host as possible because that's the important spot. If I sit next to the host, everybody knows I'm important too. So Jesus noticed that at this party. This leader of the Pharisees invites all these guys over, and that's the first thing they're doing. They're grabbed, you know, I don't know if they had place cards or not, but they're, maybe they're leaving their stuff at their spot. I want to get close to the host so everybody will know. So he uses that. He says, when someone invites you to a wedding feast... Do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Don't miss out on God's kingdom because you're focused on exalting yourself. Be humble and trust God to take care of your status. That's what Jesus is saying. I remember in high school, there, there are always award ceremonies going on, right? And there's various awards that they give out. You ever sit there and, and they start reading the characteristics of a person who's going to win a certain award, and you're hoping like crazy it's you, but you've also got this thing inside of you that says, do not stand up. Okay, because there's a really good chance this is going to somebody else. And even though you feel like 100% sure, and sometimes it is you, you wait till the very last minute because you don't want to be that fool standing up, getting ready to walk down, and then they call somebody else. That's the kind of stuff that can happen, Jesus is saying, when we seek to elevate ourselves. God often will go out of his way to bring us back to a humble place. Because that's where he wants us, where if we live humbly, he loves to lift us up. A couple of news stories this week that made me think about this. I don't know if you saw it in the Arizona Republic, but there are parts of Metro Phoenix that are sinking at a rate of three quarters of an inch a year. And the reason parts of Metro Phoenix are sinking is because we've been sucking water out of the groundwater for years. And since 1900, there are parts of Maricopa County that have sunk 18 feet because we're sucking water. The, the experts that are looking at this say it's a slow drop, so it's nothing of concern. But eventually, if this continues to happen, it could affect the foundations of buildings. That sounds concerning to me. I, I think about that, and I think it's a great picture, right? Water is this life-giving substance. It, it brings life and, and healing to, to the 
people it gets to. Humility is like that, right? It's life-giving when you're around someone that's humble, when you're around someone that puts God first and others first. We suck that humility out. We leave a hollowness of pride in our lives. It's very hollow. Maybe you've lived proud for a while and you felt the hollowness of that as all your friends and family distance themselves because you're a pain to be around. Or maybe you felt the hollowness when somebody around you lives a proud life. And ultimately, we know that when that humility is sucked out, the hollowness of pride is left. What's it lead to? Destruction. That's what Jesus is saying. If we are focused on exalting ourselves, we're going to miss out on his kingdom and there will be destruction. One other example of this that, that broke my heart. I don't know if you guys heard, heard of the 45-year-old James Young in Ohio this week. He's a guidance counselor. He went to Cedar Point. I, I've talked about that all summer. I can't stop talking about it. This may be the last time. The Raptor is a roller coaster that is, that is amazing there. I, I read a quote about it this, this week, and this is my last ad for Cedar Point. You've got to go there. Passengers seated four across in suspended chairlift-like vehicles will travel a 3,790-foot-long inverted steel track that will have six upside-down elements, including several vertical loops and barrel rolls, all beginning with a 137-foot-tall hill lift. It's amazing, okay? You're hanging underneath there. It's smooth. Love that ride. But this guy, this is what breaks my heart. He was on the ride. His wallet and his cell phone fell out on the ride. And his mother said, in a thoughtless moment, he climbed a fence and tried to retrieve them after he got off. He just hopped over the fence and thought he'd grab it. And you know what happened? The roller coaster hit him and killed him. He was just getting ready to go back to school. What a heartbreaking story. And I thought about, there's a picture here. When you follow the parameters, when you get in the line and you, and you put the harness on, the raptor can take you on an experience like no other, and it can take you to heights and speeds that you could not imagine. But if you ignore the guidelines, the very same roller coaster can bring destruction and death to your life. I thought about it in light of this story. Humility is the guideline. When we live humbly, that's God's plan. That's getting in the line and putting the harness on and when we live that way, God can take us and use us for things that you can't imagine. But when we insist on climbing fences in our lives that say, do not cross because we think we know more than God, we think we're more important than the people around us, it inevitably leads to destruction in our lives. The way Jesus told it in Luke 18, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. Not you, Bob. <laughs> I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a I should point this way this time. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified, made right before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Will you insist this week on exalting yourself? 
Or will you walk out of here and live in humility? Some of us think humility means weakness, but I was thinking about David and Goliath this week. They both showed up on the battlefield with a lot of confidence, right? They both had trash talk for the other person. The difference is Goliath was counting on himself and his weapons. Where was David's confidence? Exactly. What a fine picture of humility. We know who won the battle. Don't miss out on God's kingdom, number two, because you're worried about being repaid by those you reach out to. Verse 12, Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. Often, parties can become a network of a who's who. And if I show up at this party or invite this person to my house, and they'll invite me back, and I'll get notoriety for that. It, it happened then, it happens today. We often do things for other people so that they'll do things for us. If you doubt that, check out this recent clip. I will tell you that our system is broken. I give to many people. Before this, before two months ago, I was a businessman. I give to everybody. When they call, I give. And you know what? When I need something from them, two years later, three years later, I call them. They are there for me. So and that's get? a broken system. So what would you get from Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi? Well, I'll tell you what. With Hillary Clinton, I said, be at my wedding, and she came to my wedding. You know why? She had no choice because I gave. Donald Trump's not the only guy that does this, all right? He's just very transparent about it in this moment. We all do this at times. We give to get. And Jesus is saying that should not be the focus of our giving. I experienced this as a caterer in Chicago. Some of you have heard the story of the day I got called a poodle. Some of you haven't heard it yet. I was, I was a waiter at a party. And you know what these parties often, it's, it's friends, friends getting together and spending time together. Sometimes it's people climbing the social ladder. You know, there were socially elite people at some of these big parties in Chicago. And when they talk to each other at the parties, it's always very friendly, because when you're friendly, you climb the ladder. But sometimes when they talk to the waiter, it's not so much so. I remember one lady talking real friendly to, to her cohorts standing around her, you know, just having a lovely conversation. And I'd been around the room several times passing out hors d'oeuvres. I came again later in the party, so would you care for an hors d'oeuvre? And she stops her very friendly conversation with the people she's talking to and looks at me and says, I told you, no thank you, poodle. That was the first and only time I've ever been called a poodle. <laughs> Why would she talk like that to me when she talked very differently to the other people? I had really nothing to offer her other than hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> and she knew that. These other people had social standing and clout to offer her. So even though in her heart she may not have even liked some of these other people, she spoke very differently to them. Many of us go out to lunch on Sunday, and that's good. We love to eat, right? And we're usually very nice to the people that we're going out to lunch with, especially if they're paying, right? Then we're extra nice. <laughs> but then, how do you speak to the waiter or the waitress? I think about when you're at the grocery store. How do you speak to the cashiers? Or are you constantly on their phone making them feel as though they're an inconvenience rather than a human? Yeah, I think part of what Jesus is getting at is he cares just as much as not more as a how we care about people in our lives when the cameras are not on 
than he does when we're given a speech to thank someone that's going to later thank us back. I think about the sportscaster, the, the woman who got her car towed several months ago, and you may have seen it on YouTube. She didn't know she was on camera, but when she went into the car towing place, she swore at the lady behind the counter. She told her she was overweight, uneducated, her teeth were crooked. She didn't know the camera was on. And when the camera's on, she, oh, she's very polished. Speaks very well of people. But in that moment, it went all over YouTube how she really treats people that in her mind don't matter. And I think about that. I think, you know what? There are moments where we don't realize the camera's on, but God's camera is always on. And he cares about how and why we treat people the way we do. Here's Jesus' antidote to that. Don't just invite the people that are going to pay you back. It's not wrong to have your family and friends over, but go beyond that. He says, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. What's the idea here? Don't miss out on God's kingdom because you're worried about being repaid by those you reach out to. Love those that the world sees as the least of these and trust God to repay you in the end. Trust God. This is one of the distinguishing marks of the Christian faith. Justin shared an article with me this week that social justice, bringing right action and and change to our world is not a liberal idea. It's been a Christian idea from the beginning, bringing God's kingdom to bear in our world when there's brokenness. If you doubt that, listen to what the Roman Emperor Julian wrote in the fourth century. They called Christians atheists in the Roman Empire back then because the the Romans had this whole pantheon of gods and the Christians refused to worship them, okay? So they called them atheists. That's why it's going to say atheists and what he wrote. But listen to what he wrote. Atheism, the Christian faith, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless, the Christian Galileans, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. He said it's a shame that atheism is growing, but it's growing because they're loving people. They're loving the poor. They're loving the sick. People that we ignore. We bail when they get that plague. Those Christians stay there and minister to the people. They're taking care of poor in our empire that we should be taking care of, but we don't. And that's why it's advancing. Taking Jesus to the least of these is a Christian idea. We must re-embrace it. I think, again, of an opportunity we've got coming up in our missional communities. Arizona Family Care is a group out of Phoenix that I've mentioned before. We continue to prepare to talk to our MC leaders about what would it look like for our missional communities to help families whose kids are on the brink of going into the foster system in Arizona. There are 18,000 kids in the system right now. 18,000 children in Arizona in the foster system. How could churches minister to these families before they break up and before the kids end up there? 
Those kids can't repay us anything. But you know what? God can. And ultimately, at the heart of it, that ought to be secondary anyway. What, what's our motive? It's our love for God and our love for our neighbor as ourself that ought to drive why we do what we do. So we look at this. Let me ask us, will we only reach out to those who can repay us or recognize us? Or will we be a people who reach out to the least of these, trusting that God himself will take care of our repayment? Third and final point. Don't miss out on God's kingdom because of lame excuses. There's a man at the table in verse 15 who has listened to Jesus talking about the kingdom, and we think he kind of assumed, yeah, we'll be there. We'll be right at the front of the table. Jesus is talking in verse 15, says when one of the, those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Like, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Jesus is going to tell him another story. Verse 16, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for now everything is ready. Something in that culture that was interesting back then, often there would be two invitations to a party because the preparations were extensive. You don't just go to Walmart and get everything you need. You've got to butcher, you've got to bake, you've got to do all these things to prepare for a party. So maybe a couple months in advance, a word would go out like, hey, there's going to be a party two months from now. When it gets closer, we'll know, let you know exactly when. Then the day of or a day before, the messenger would go out again and say, hey, it's tonight at 6.30, or it's tomorrow at 6.30. We believe that most likely, in Jesus' mind, all the guys in this story had got the first invitation. They had received the invitation, the word of the Messiah, for years through their prophets. These Pharisees had heard of the coming Messiah. They had heard in Isaiah that he would suffer and die for the redemption of people. They received the first invitation. Now we're looking most likely at the second invitation. He says, at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. Who's the messenger now in Jesus' time? Jesus, I'm here. I'm the Messiah you've been waiting for. It's time. But they all alike began to make excuses in his story. The first excuse is basically, I must put this thing ahead of you. All right? The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Now, how many of you have ever bought a house without having it appraised first, or without looking at it? None of us, right? And they wouldn't do that with a field either. You would go look at that field, see what it looks like. So this is really a lame excuse. Most likely he had already looked at it before he bought it. He's just fixated on this thing. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. How many of you would buy a car without test driving it? I remember when we bought our Kia Optima. We, we called up the flagstaff. And we told the guy what we were looking for. We don't want a lot of dents and dings, a lot of scratches. And he said, oh, I got one for you. So we drove all the way to Flagstaff, got up there. This thing was a mess. You talk about dings and dents. And I'm like, do you remember the part where I told you about dings and dents? <laughs> Guess what? He calls back in a, in a couple weeks and says, I got another one for you. And I said, Guess what? If we're going to look at it, you're going to drive it to Prescott Valley. <laughs> 
He did. We looked at this one. We test drove it. It turned out to be the one. We examine things before we buy them. Same with this guy. He probably tested out these 10 oxen before he bought them. He's just fixated on them. So he says, please excuse me. Here's another excuse. I must put this relationship ahead of you. Verse 20, still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Look, let, let's be honest. When we look at these excuses and say most likely what's going on in Jesus' story is these are lame excuses. These people just did not want to go to the feast that they had been invited to. They didn't really want it. They didn't really care about it. So we, we want to ask these guys, and maybe ourselves, let's, let's just admit sometimes that, that our fields, our oxes, and our relationships are more important to us than the banquet that God's inviting us to. Jesus is saying, don't miss out on God's kingdom because of lame excuses. Put God first and trust him to care for your things and your relationships, right? Now, here's the deal. Sometimes God will call us to give up something for his kingdom banquet that he invites us to. But I think a lot of times it's not even a giving up. It's God saying, hey, bring those things to my altar and we'll use those to advance my kingdom. It's not always that God's calling us to give up my house. It's not always like my house or God's kingdom. Sometimes it's God saying, how will you use that house to advance God's kingdom? Who will you have into that home I've given you? Who will you use that oven to cook for and reach out to? Who will you use that garage to bless with your gift of fixing vehicles? I think of Randy. Randy, you've helped so many. He didn't know I was going to call him out. He's helped so many with car issues. Because he loves working in a garage. Too many people come to a point where somebody tells them, you've got to give up that garage for God. No. Maybe in a specific instance, God would call someone to that. But many times he says, how can we use that passion you've got to love on others and advance my kingdom? Instead of saying my vehicle or God's kingdom, maybe God's saying, how can I use my vehicle to advance God's kingdom? Maybe you can put out one of the decals that Jen has out in the lobby today and say the church next door. Cheap plug. <laughs> Maybe you can be like Paul Trout. Leads one of our missional communities. Many of the people in that group are widows. So you know what Paul does? Every, every week when he has that missional community, he and his wife Kitty drive around and pick them up. They're elderly. Many of them can't drive. And he brings them to their house. He uses the vehicle for God's kingdom. Instead of saying, my wife, my kids, or God's kingdom, the question is, how can God use my, my family to advance God's kingdom? Maybe at a basketball practice, or in the front yard as we play basketball together and a neighbor walks by. It's, it's how can God use these to advance his kingdom? Now, I want you to check something out. We said they had lame excuses, right? <laughs> it leads us for a moment to say, what lame excuses do I have? for not partnering with God. Because chances are there's one or two. Let's let the Holy Spirit do a little digging. But I want you to compare their lame excuses to the resolve of the guy having this feast in this story to fill up his feast. Their, eh, to his, I've got to have a full house. Watch this. I mean, wouldn't it have been easy for him to be like, oh, all the first people I invited turned me down. I'm just going to cancel this feast. Nobody wants to come anyway. But is that what he did? Verse 21. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, 
go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And we talk about streets and alleys, especially alleys. There were people that hung out in the alleys that had poor reputations, many of them for good reason. This master wants his feast full. So he says, go quickly into the streets and alleys. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Now we're getting outside the city. Now we believe Jesus is hinting that there's Gentiles going to be coming in. Most of you and I are people in these country lanes coming in to the banquet, getting invited. But I love what it says. He says, go out there and compel them to come in. That shows the heart of this master. He wants his feast to be full so bad. He says to the servants, go out there and compel them. Tell them about how great the feast is. Tell them I want them there. Tell them to come. He won't rest until it's full. What does that mean for us? Well, number one, if he wants us there so bad, doesn't it make sense to lay aside our lame excuses? Shouldn't we just drop everything and say, yes, Jesus, I want to be at your feast. But secondly, if we live here as those who have been invited to the feast and receive that invitation, we ought to join him with the same eagerness in inviting others. If he wants us to go out there and compel people to come in, we ought to be busy about doing that. Sometimes when we get rejected, it's easy to shut the love off. What if God had done that? Corey Ten Boom, who rescued many people from the Nazis, said this. She said, do you know what hurts so very much? It's love. Love is the strongest force in the world. And when it is blocked, that means pain. There are two things we can do when this happens. We can kill that love so that it stops hurting. But then, of course, part of us dies too. Or we can ask God to open up another route for that love to travel. God's love was like that. It would not stop. If it's rejected here, it's going here. It's going to keep on going forward. We were the ones in the alleys. We are the ambassadors. I think about the people in the alleys. Think about the poor, the lame, the blind, the crippled, the hurting in our world. And and I think about a situation where this hit close to home for our family this week. Carolyn has some cousins, three brothers. When we lived there and we were dating, we'd, we'd be there at holidays and have a great time with them. Several years ago, one of the boys died because of a drug overdose. We went back and I did the funeral service we were there with the family. We, we spoke to one of the other brothers about the gospel of Jesus. Don't know what, didn't get any overt response to it. But just this week, Carolyn got a call from her mom that another of the two brothers had died because of drugs. Now the third and, and youngest brother is on Facebook this week and he puts this. He says, As everyone already knows, evidently I'm the only one left. So please pray for me and yourselves, if you use, because your number will come. He goes on to say, somehow I still believe in God. I refuse to let the devil get me. And the next morning, 
he posted. He's at a church there at a meeting at 8.05 in the morning. And the first thing he posts is, I definitely need this meeting. I definitely need this meeting. But only a half hour into that meeting at a church, you know what he posted? 8.35 a.m. Drama is about to happen here. People arguing on whether or not addicts should be allowed here. People need to work on their spirituality and love. You know what I say? I say, yes, 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 he's got it. That's what Jesus is saying. Our churches should have many stripes of people in them. And all of us coming together admitting we need a Savior. We need his grace for forgiveness and his grace for change. As we close, I think about these three ideas, okay? I think about humility. I think about reaching out to the least with no hope of reward. And I think about a no-excuses attitude, one to saying yes to God's kingdom and then spreading the, the invitation with him. And I thought of one life that pictures this as powerfully as anything I've ever seen. Sir Nicholas Winton. How many of you have heard of him? Get ready. Get ready. He was born in 1909. He died in July this year, 2015. He was 106 years old. Okay, as a young man, he, he was a businessman in London, a stockbroker. In 1939, he heard about the, the burgeoning Nazism and, and its beginning spread. So in 1939, he went to Prague, Czechoslovakia. He had it on his heart to protect Jewish children in Czechoslovakia from the growing Nazism. He went there. That was his vacation in summer 1939, seeing what was going on. Long story short, he went there and he arranged for seven trains out of Prague to London that carried over 600 children out of there. There was an eighth train schedule with over 200 more children, but before that train could leave, the war began and the train lines were closed down. Two years after the last train, the Nazis began in earnest to slaughter the Jews. Many of the Jews in Czechoslovakia were sent to Auschwitz. There's a synagogue in Czechoslovakia that has the lists of all the Jews they know that died at the hands of the Germans. 77,300 Czechoslovakian Jews murdered in the Holocaust. Meanwhile, he had these 600 children safely finding homes in, in London. During the war, he volunteered for an ambulance unit, and he trained pilots for the royal office. Then he went on after that to live a normal life, 50 years, raised a family, hardly told anyone what had happened. And then in 1988, on the BBC network, he received a surprise. I want you to watch this. Just a note for our online listeners. If you'd like to see this powerful video, just go to churchnextdooraz.com, then click on the sermons page and click on this sermon. We have the video embedded there. Fifty years. He rarely told anyone. A reporter asked him, why did you keep it secret for so long? He said, I really didn't keep it secret. I just didn't tell anyone. <laughs> now look at his face there, and, and it tells me he understood some of what we're talking about today. He didn't have to exalt himself. And see, God, God did that for him. 
in this moment. What a, what a moment of, of celebration. He was actually knighted in 2003. That's why he's now Sir Nicholas Linton. He also found fulfillment in reaching out to children who could offer him nothing. You saw the fulfillment in his face, right? All these kids stood up. He knew the joy of laying aside every excuse and doing everything he could for the sake of what's right. Think of all the excuses a young stockbroker in London could come up with to not do that. He broke through them all. Saved over 600 lives. And I think in doing so, in light of Jesus' words, he gives us a great example not only of how we can live humbly, reaching out to those who can't repay us and laying aside our excuses, but also of what Jesus did for us. You think of the humility of Jesus leaving his throne. You think of him reaching out to us. You think of all the excuses that could have arisen and he broke through those. He, he, he did that not to save us from a concentration camp, but to save us from a Christless eternity. I think about that and I say it only makes sense for us to follow in his footsteps. Father, I thank you for Jesus' stories at a feast. It it was a tense feast set up as a trap and and as you often did, Jesus, you, you leveraged it to speak truth and life. We don't know how the original crowd in that party responded. We know how some of them did. The question is, how will we respond this morning? Will we live humbly? Will we give without thought of repayment from those we reach out to? And will we have a no-excuses attitude to embracing your kingdom and sharing it with those in the the highways and the alleys, the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind. Jesus, as we prepare to remember what you did at the cross through communion, I pray that it would be just a powerful moment where we, one, say thank you all over again, and two, just recommit ourselves to following in your kingdom footsteps. Lord, I pray that you do that in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.